0: Good morning, Bethel. All right, our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. So if you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 810. Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, page 810 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord to us starting in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. You can have a seat. Well... We're back in to our series on Isaiah after a little bit of a hiatus here. And I want um, to begin this morning at the end, not just at the end of Isaiah, although we're getting there. We're in chapter 60 this morning, but actually the end of the Bible. So I'll just read this. We're going to come back to this text. But just listen, Revelation 21, 22 to 26, it says this, and I saw no temple in the city, the new Jerusalem, it's the new creation. This is the end of the story. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Do you know what that means? By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, into this new Jerusalem, the city of God that's come down out of heaven when all things are made new. What does it mean that they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations? Well, I'll tell you this, it's awesome. (laughs) But we'll wait on actually answering that question until the end here. Um, But our passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 60, is key to understanding what's going on there. Um, We'll come back to that, like I said. So um, we're going to start with a little bit of... Rehearsal. We need to know our place in the story. We've done this several times as we've walked through Isaiah because it's hard to kind of parachute into a big, huge Old Testament book like Isaiah and know where we are, get our bearings. But when I say here, point number one, knowing our place in the story, I'm actually talking about the whole story, okay? So this isn't a place to check out, you know, if you've gone to Sunday school and all. Um, this is actually really important to understanding what's going on in Isaiah 60. And by the way, this is going to be the longest point. So if we get to the end of point one and you're like, oh my goodness, we're going to be here till one, um, it'll go a little bit shorter after that. But I first want to rehearse the storyline of the Bible, at least up until Isaiah 60, because you need to see some patterns. And then you'll see how Isaiah 60 fits into that pattern um, in a, in a really important way. So, where are we? Let's start all the way back at the beginning of human history. In the beginning, God said, Let there be light. And there was light. You've heard some of these themes already this morning in the things that Mark and Josh and others have said and that the ladies read and the songs that we've sung. And the darkness was dispelled or put in its place. And the light brought life and order to the chaos. Genesis 1 and 2. God then created image bearers, Adam and Eve, the first human beings. And the fact that they were image bearers meant that they were able to reflect God's light, the light of his glory. So they were made in his image in order to reflect his glory. He blessed them and he charged them to be fruitful and multiply. Why? So that they could fill the earth with his glory. So that, it, so that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But they failed, right? And so what happened when they failed? Darkness fell. And the darkness proliferated and filled the earth. And so God's glory was obscured. If they were to be like a mirror reflecting His glory, you can imagine the fall, like, smashing the mirror. And so the earth was and is filled, not just with the glory of the Lord, but also with so much trash, violence, injustice. So the earth is filled with blight because it's under the curse that we brought on ourselves by our rebellion. So the good thing is that God promised that it would not always be so. So really important point in our story, Genesis 12, Everything's looking pretty bad, you know, the Tower of Babel and all, and then God calls one man. It's almost like this beam of light just shines into Ur of the Chaldeans and grabs a hold of this guy, Abram, and God says, the Lord says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God is shining his light into the darkness again. He's pouring out new covenantal blessings. And those blessings to Abraham were supposed to go through Abram, Abraham to bless all the earth, right? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So at that point in the story, you're thinking maybe through Abraham, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, like it's supposed to. And Abraham certainly believed God's promises, so he received those promises, but the fulfillment of those promises were nowhere to be seen in his lifetime, at least the fullness of them. Token early fulfillment, yes, but the fullness, no. He certainly didn't see his descendants like the the sand on the seashore, Okay so nevertheless through Isaac and then Jacob who came to be known as Israel the one man God called out of the darkness Abram became 12 tribes okay and yet they're hardly able to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord at that point you know they they were fruitful they multiplied but they did so where under this dark oppressive hand of Pharaoh in Egypt right they were slaves but God raises up Moses, and he's going to shine his light in the darkness of slavery and show his glory by setting them free. He was going to deliver them from that domain of darkness and transfer them to the land of milk and honey, the promised land, light and life, okay? So he cast their enemies. You remember, right before he drew them out powerfully from Egypt, he cast their enemies into outer darkness, Right? And then brought death to the firstborn while he maintained light for his people in Goshen. And he delivered them from death by the blood of the Lamb. And what ended up happening? You you see this echoed throughout the Old Testament. The nations heard about this. Some of them trembled. Some of them were curious. Some, like Rahab, said, I want in on this. Okay? Who didn't hear about how Yahweh fought for his people? So, so much light, so much blessing at the Exodus, and yet that light only glanced off them momentarily because it wasn't welling up from within them. Even the light on Moses' face, remember when he saw God, it faded. So, the darkness won out in the wilderness, even after all of that light, all that mercy, all that grace. It won out in the wilderness, and all that generation died without having seen God the promised land, but God continued to make his face shine on his people. The next generation, at least they had Joshua and Caleb, you know, shining some light. They radiated the glory of God. They called other people to trust him, and yet the conquest, that was a mixed bag, and the generations of the judges to follow, that was a mess, like a spiral down into deep darkness. When everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, you know night's fallen when that happens, right? But then a new day dawns with the word of the Lord on the lips of Samuel. Right? He ruled pretty well, but it seemed like he was keeping darkness at bay rather than spreading light. People are crying out for a king like all the rest of the nations, and they get one, and again, fail, failure. The darkness in Saul's soul darkened everything around him. But, <laughs> but God shined the light of his face yet again. On his people, more covenantal blessings. He raises up a man after his own heart to follow Saul as king. The glory of God's light shone out from within David's heart, right? He was a man after God's own heart. All these psalms come from him. So the kingdom was blessed and it multiplied. The reach of God's glory is shining farther and farther in this golden age of God's people. But David failed. He was like, the Jekyll and Hyde mix of light and darkness sometimes, right? The kingdom paid for his failures. But God shone the light of his grace once again, despite the union of David and Bathsheba, born of adultery and murder. Their second child, first one died, right? Second child, Solomon, rises to the throne with wisdom and glory. Never had the, the, the nation been wealthier. Never had they been more fruitful and abundant. Never had the earthly presence of Yahweh been more radiant. The temple of Yahweh would have taken your breath away. The nations were hearing reports of this God and his wise king, and they came to see the glory, the light. Remember the Queen of Sheba? Right? So maybe Israel, and, and actually she comes and brings her treasures and sets them at the feet of the king, right? In honor to the king and his God. So maybe the glory of the Lord would finally spread and fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Well, maybe not. Wisdom gave way to idolatrous folly. Darkness falls again. The kingdom is fractured into two. Dark kings rule and spread darkness. And God continued to shine His light through prophets that he raised up, periodically some good kings, but it never lasted for long, right? It always seemed like it was imposed from outside and it was never welling up from within. And the people eventually stuck their fingers in their ears and they preferred darkness to the light of God's word like was read earlier in Isaiah 8 and the beginning of 9. So... Dark nations overtook God's people and enslaved them in the darkness of captivity, and that's exactly where we find God's people in Isaiah 60. They're still in Babylon, hearing promises of deliverance and comfort and all this good stuff, but they're really having trouble believing it. Now let's read Isaiah 60, okay? And you've got to hear the repetitions, the, the themes of the, this pattern, these cycles that we heard multiple times in the storyline. Just listen for them as we read through this chapter. Arise, shine. Well, here, let's... You need the page number. Isaiah, you can find it on page 619 in in the Pew Bible. So, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Hmm. And shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebooth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious, my footstool, the people over whom I reign. The son of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations. You shall nurse at the breast of kings. And you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make over, your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise the sun shall be no more your light by day nor for brightness shall the moon give you light but the lord will be your everlasting light and your god will be your glory your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself for the lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended your people shall all be righteous they shall possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least, least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. There's a lot in there. And, and there's lots of poetic language, and we can get lost in it a little bit, but it's a beautiful picture that Isaiah is painting here for us so we begin in the darkness point number two if you're following along in the outline you see it there in verse two it's directly stated there for behold darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples it's implied in verses one to three arise shine for your light has come the glory of the Lord has risen upon you why did you need that because you were in the darkness you need light to come you need light to shine Or down below what I just read, the darkness and the thick darkness, the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light. So you'll be transferred from darkness to light. You will have the light of the Lord shining upon you. But it starts in darkness. And ultimately, the deepest source of this darkness for them or for us is sin. That's why Israel was in Babylon in captivity away from their homeland in the first place, their rebellion. And that's the deepest darkness that we all need delivered from. Like, you can, you can be delivered circumstantially from oppressive circumstances and still be a slave to sin internally. And it'll just, you'll just lock on some other thing that enslaves you. So the internal freedom that we need from selfishness and pride and sin is the deep deliverance that we need, and that's what he's talking about here. But there's also the circumstantial darkness and discouragement and depression that can come from waiting, waiting for the Lord to fulfill, to shine his light and fulfill his promises. He makes promises that are full of light, but sometimes there's waiting between the making of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And in a sense, that's what's going on here in Isaiah 60 because the book itself has already turned the corner. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah is prophesying comfort for the people of God, that they've, they've paid their, their time and there's going to be a deliverance coming, but they're still in Babylon and they're waiting. So that kind of waiting, we experience it as well. We may have been redeemed by Jesus. We're freed from our sin, but man, what is going on? In my life, in our world, like the waiting can really get you down. The smell of the political cesspool that splashes on us on a daily basis these days. And the darkness that seems to be cast on us now and our future as we look at the political landscape and the moral darkness of our time and place with regard to issues of sexuality, the value of human life, the racial tensions and injustice, and on and on, I mean, it can get you down. Not to mention some of the personal stuff we struggle with that can really weigh us down and... Depress us, okay? So how about also threats like terrorism, cyber warfare, the dark effects of the curse? I mean, my sister had to flee from Savannah because of the hurricane. Earthquakes and viruses and victims everywhere. I mean, this world can get you down. But listen, church, light has dawned. We need, that's why we're here this morning. We're not just here to go through some motions. Like, we need to be reminded of what's true. We need to kind of get, like, plugged back into the story to realize, well, wait a second. There's an author, there's one who's in control. There is hope, there's light. I need to be reminded of this because it's so easy to just get our heads down in the dark and get lost. So, light has dawned. Remember Matthew 2 after listening to the king. The Magi, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Did you hear that? In verse 6 of Isaiah 60, Like, wait a second, the light has dawned and the nations, these magi from the east, they're drawn to this light and they brought their treasures and they lay them at the feet of the king? Like, that sounds awfully similar to the pattern of the storyline that we walk through, right? Now look back at Isaiah 59. This is the immediate context here. Again, it's been a few weeks, so it's helpful to just remind ourselves. Here's what God speaks into the darkness of their circumstances. Look back at 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Like when you're in dark circumstances, it's really easy to think, has God just forgotten about us? He doesn't care. Maybe he can't do anything. His hands are tied, whatever. Oh, no, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Look down at verse 8. The way of peace, I mean, the way that he describes the darkness, apart from the light of Christ, we are a mess. We're in trouble. The way of peace, they do not know. There's no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness, and for brightness but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. And then look a little further along. The Lord saw it, verse 15, and it displeased him that there was no justice. The darkness displeases him. He doesn't just, he's not indifferent he saw that there was no man. There's no one actually able to deliver. He wondered that there was no one to intercede, but then he, got, he made our problem his problem. His own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him, and a redeemer, verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. And obviously, this is Jesus. He really got involved in our problem, made our problem, his problem, sending his son, Jesus, the light of the world, plunges into the darkness and on the cross actually takes our darkness, our sin, on himself, in our place so that we can be remade. Let there be light. Transfer from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son for all who turn from transgression. Don't you want to turn from the darkness, from from transgression and run and be rescued in the light. That's what salvation is all about. And then Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3, arise. So this Redeemer will come to those who turn from transgression. Arise, shine, because your light has come. The Redeemer will come. The light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So, in other words, church for us our part of the story as we read this. Get up, brighten up. This moment of the Lord shining His light is not some flash-in-the-pan thing. It's not just going to be like a spotlight, you know, on us for a moment in the landscape, and then as it leaves us, we're just back in the darkness. When the Redeemer came, when this Redeemer came, He came to swallow up our darkness, and when He rose... He sent his spirit to dwell within us so that we could be lit from the inside. That's how we can be the light of the world, that we're lit from the inside so we can radiate with his light out in this dark world. Flip over to uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and you'll see this. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul's talking about the nature of his ministry, and certainly many reject the gospel as he brings the light of the gospel to them. And so he explains, in their case, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it's on page 964, if you are in the Pew Bible. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, God of this world, Satan, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, because God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So by by nature, naturally speaking, we are in the darkness spiritually. And so there needs to be like a recreation, like Genesis 1 all over again, let there be light. And that's exactly what happens when the gospel comes and and by God's spirit he opens your eyes to see Christ as gain, as your savior, to rescue you from darkness. You say, yes! You turn from your transgression, you trust in Jesus. This is what happens. There's this new creation, let there be light, and you're made new from the inside out. And so You have light within you by God's Spirit that shines from the inside out. We have this radiant treasure within our jar of clay body. God has shown in our hearts. He said, let there be light. He's made us new from within, and that newness lasts forever until all things are made new. So you and me, we're going to need to keep believing this. We're going to need to keep hearing this. Like this week, every day, every week, Because it's only by believing that, by being encouraged by the grace and the truth and the light and the mercy of God in the gospel, being strengthened by it, that's how we will arise and shine in the midst of a world that can really get you down because of the darkness. That's actually why we were lit in the first place, in order to be radiant with God's light. So fourth point, look at it again. We're spending a lot of time on these first few verses, but they, in a sense, summarize the whole chapter. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It rests on you because it's within you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see it? We're supposed to be radiant with his light. And so what happens when we shine with that light? Fifth point. People are drawn to that light. Despite the darkness, verse 2 again, the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. I mean, how exciting is it to see the nations streaming into the kingdom of God? Is that thrilling? Verse 5, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. So this is what happens when we, the church live radiantly with the light of Christ we go and tell and we are a living embodiment of the beauty of the light of Christ and so people want to come and see it's both in go and tell come and see the text Tyler read you are the light of the world Jesus speaking to his disciples if you follow Jesus this is who you are you're the light of the world I mean, if you're not shining, how's the world going to have light? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp. God didn't light you to stick you under a basket, but to put you on a stand so that you can give light to the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. I mean, Isaiah prophesied this would happen. Isaiah 2.2, it shall come to pass in the latter days... In fact, turn back there, Isaiah two. I know we're bouncing around a lot this morning, but you see, I hope that you see that this is all telling the same story over and over and over again from different places. Isaiah two two. <clears throat> it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the light is so beautiful. The people of the city of God are so compelling that the nations Want to get in on this? That's the picture. And the cool thing is, I think this is happening more and more among us. Just this week, um, wonderful opportunity. Some some opportunities that I had on Tuesday um, over at the Starbucks. It was like I didn't get any work done, but had some great conversations with people that I've had relationships with and. Met a new guy as well. Um, So this Armenian friend of mine opened up and was able to talk to him about Jesus. Um, A Korean Jehovah's Witness was sitting there, and I started a conversation with him. Actually, you guys have talked with him. Um, And then on Thursday, I was so encouraged because there's like several texts coming into my phone where Brett had had conversation with this guy with Jewish background who wants to start reading the Bible with him. He was all excited about that, and and Joanne um, had great conversation with a person that she works with, and um, then there's people inviting people to the Delaware Leadership Prayer Breakfast, where Eric Metaxas is going to be speaking, and if you've got some co-workers that you want to invite October 20th, that's two Thursdays from now, 7.20 to 9 o'clock, you can get them a ticket, and they're going to hear the, the Gospel of Jesus, clearly, from Eric Metaxas. Anyway, I'm sure there's lots of other examples, but don't you want to get in on this? Like, don't you want to shine like this and just watch as we lift Jesus up? He just draws people to himself. The more beautiful that we become, by his grace, honest, real, not fake and plastic, loving, like really loving, gracious in a world that's like the meritocracy and what have you done for me lately and like gracious, peaceful, forgiving people. By the power of the gospel, we can expect to see more and more people drawn to our beautiful Savior. I mean, did you see how much beauty is in this chapter? Did you hear it over and over again? And I know I spent a lot of time on verses one to five, but The rest of the verses are all about the wealth, the beauty of the nations coming into the city of God and making it even more beautiful. So what in the world does that mean? The beauty of God's dwelling, where he resides. Well, where he resides now is with his people. He dwells among his church. This church is not the walls. This is the church. Good morning, Bethel, not hi, welcome to Bethel. Bethel's not the 1217. Bethel is the people. Right? So God dwells with his people. Right? So back to the storyline. Remember Solomon and Queen of Sheba? She was drawn to the light, the beauty of Yahweh's house and his people and his kingdom. She brought her treasures in, laid them at Solomon's feet. Well, that was like a little early preview, a little parable of what happens when the light of God shines in and among a people and dispels the darkness. So people are drawn to the light. And what happens when they come, they bring their cultural wealth. And the unified people of God become more and more diverse and more and more beautiful, precisely because there's this rich diversity. Okay, so we have a beautiful Savior. And by his light and grace, we become a beautiful people, a beautiful people with beautiful feet, carrying the light of the gospel into the darkness, and people are drawn to that light, and the house of God grows with this diverse unity because we're all centered on Jesus, and the household of God is beautified. So Chris and and Ozzy, isn't our church more beautiful with them here because they're from Argentina, right? And Sarah Zhu, this church is more beautiful because you are a part from China, and Yvonne from the islands, from the Caribbean, Kenza from Morocco, and Sylvester, you're from Canada, but where else? England. All right, awesome. You're from multiple places, which is why you're so beautiful. And Stephen Jemmy from India, and all of us with this cultural heritage, whether Greek or Italian or Polish or German or whatever, I mean, even the South, I love taking shots at Tyler. Um, <laughs> no, it's because he can take it. No, th- think about this. I mean, southern ho- hospitality can be an idol, but also it can adorn the gospel. I think there's going to be southern hospitality in the new heavens and the new earth and probably some sweet tea, like rocking good sweet tea. Um, all right, so the gospel, the beautiful gospel of this beautiful Savior transforms the people of God And we're actually the solution to the darkness that covers the earth right now. Rise and shine because your light has come. It has risen. And because darkness still fills the earth, the Lord will arise upon you. He already has. And through us, the nations will see his light and they will come. So the light's dawn in his first coming. The full day has yet to arrive. But, oh man, when it does, that's going to be a beautiful day. Like, don't we need to be reminded of that day coming in the midst of this craziness and darkness? So back to that question that we started with. What's, it, what's that passage in Revelation 21 mean? That the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into the city of God. Well, think with me here. Okay, in, in the Bible, it's a little tiny parenthesis here, so don't, don't check out. In the Bible, world, like don't love the world, doesn't mean like the terra firma, like the don't love dirt, you know, if you're a farmer. It means don't love the world in its fallenness. The world is the flesh, like the sinful nature writ large. Right? And so there's like um, lust in the human heart and there's all kinds of temptation all over the place because of the nature of the world and its fallenness, right? And so, take that and then think about it this way. Just as there is good, common grace good, flowing from the fact that we still are made in the image of God even though we're broken, there's also good, common grace in culture. So, so there's some good in your neighbor next door to you. He does some good things because there's the vestige of the Im, image of God imprinted there. We'll ratchet that up, writ large. Culture has a lot of good in it. And especially to see the diversity of cultures. Okay? So, wealth of the nations, we're trying to answer this question. Listen to Cornelius Plantica. He writes this: All the centuries of human obedience to the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply the earth will have produced some treasure by the end trash too lots of trash but also treasure if this is the fullness that belongs to god then we may think of the holy city as the garden of eden plus the fullness of the centuries so just think about this in terms of art in terms of music in terms of food and festivals in terms of dance and clothing, sports and games, and on and on, what happens when the wealth of the nations comes in to the kingdom at the end? Like, we get a foretaste now because you might sit at, you know, Chris and Ozzie's table and you're going to go, whoa, like, what is the food going to be like in heaven? But that day when all the wealth comes in and beautifies the beautiful house, like, The church is a preview. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, at the end, the city of God, Revelation 21, the wealth of the nations is going to come in. And, oh, is the house going to be beautiful. So so you can, like, keep your head down and be depressed about the political landscape and what's all going on. Or you know what? We could live like POWs that just heard the planes overhead. And all of a sudden, our heads come up, and our countenances get bright, and we're like, "Woohoo!" and the guards get nervous, because everything's changed. The light's already come, and it's coming, and there's nothing that's going to stop that. And so we can even, like, we might be really weird people in the face of political insanity right now, because you know what? In the end, we know who's on the throne. We know we know how it all ends. In the end, Jesus wins. We're with him, and you can be with him. So, the wealth of the nations, like, if you just take—I mean, we could take a lot of time with this. We won't, but like, just take music. In the new heavens and the new earth, the wealth in nations is going to come in: jazz and R and B, classical and opera, rock and roll. I'm not sure about country. Is that going to be in heaven? <laughs> um, I guess there's not going to be any blues that, anyway, okay, I should stop now. But like instrumental diversity, there's going to be bagpipes from Scotland and drums from, of all kinds from all over the world and duduks from Armenia and rababs from Afghanistan and the Ndongo from Uganda and the dotora. from, I don't even know what these things are, but I'm looking forward to hearing them. Um, Bangladesh and the Guz, how do you say this? Sarah, is it the guzheng from China? Guzheng. okay, thank you and the harp from Egypt, and the ukulele from Hawaii, and the vena from vi- India. Did I say that right? Yes? No? Okay, close enough. And the mandolin from Italy, and the shofar from Israel, and the marimba from Mexico. I mean, and then there's the diversity in how these instruments are played. There's just so much cultural, musical wealth out there, and that's just musical wealth. I mean, just think about food. So listen to uh, Christopher Wright. He wrote a book called The God I Don't Understand, Reflections on Tough Questions of Faith. And this is kind of a lengthy quote, but you'll see it's worth it. He's talking about Revelation 21, that passage we started with, and he said, this is a wonderful promise. But we have to ask, what constitutes the glory of kings and the glory and honor of the nations? This cannot be imagining some pageant of crowned heads parading their own pomp and pride in a great procession of the powerful into heaven. I don't think the Bible, after all, it has said about God's rejection of the arrogance of the great and after all that Jesus said about the last being first means to end with the idea that the great and powerful of the earth get to stay that way when we all get to heaven. What makes kings glorious, to the extent that they are at all, is the accumulated work of their subject. Whether in creating the wealth their kingdom is built on or in fighting to protect it or to extend it, What brings honor to nations is the accumulation of cultural achievement over many generations. Art, literature, music, architecture, styles of food and dress, the richness of language and culture, and so much else. These are the things that national distinctives are built on, which at their best, enrich our humanity, and at their most trivial, support the tourist industry. And these are things that all human beings participate in and contribute to, however humbly. These, I think, are what is implied by the language of national glory and honor as represented by the king of the, of the earth, kings of the earth. These are the things they will be bringing into the city of God in John's vision. Now, of course, all such national glory and honor is shot through also with human pride, greed, violence, and immorality. Cultural glories go along with cultural horrors. The splendor of all civilizations has been built on shameful foundations, like America. We know that all too well in our fallen world, But if only human civilization could be purged of all such marks of the fall, how glorious then would it be? It would all resound in praise of the God who created us in his own image with such limitless capacity. The glory of humanity and the glory of God would at last be in harmony and not opposed to one another. But what we have in Revelation is not just a longing, if only this could be true. The Bible promises that it will be so. It's not a matter of if only, but when. Not only will there be a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, but also there will be a great parade of the nations as they bring their glory, wealth, and splendor into the city of God. All that has enriched and honored the life of all nations and all history will be brought in to enrich the new creation. The new creation will not be a blank page as if God will simply crumple up the whole of human historical life in this creation and toss it in the cosmic bin and then hand us a new sheet to start all over again. The new creation will start with the unimaginable reservoir of all that human civilization has accomplished in the old creation, but purged, cleansed, disinfected, sanctified, and blessed. And we shall have eternity to enjoy it and to build upon it in ways we cannot dream of now as we will exercise the powers of creativity of our redeemed humanity. Let me just pause for a second and say Do you see, that's exactly how Southern hospitality, if you're from the South, goes from idol to instrument? And whatever your cultural background and heritage and strength is, when you come to Jesus, it gets purified and you use it for the glory of the king. So it comes in now and it beautifies, it it just points to the beauty of Christ because it gets purified and used for the purpose for which it was given, right? And then one day at the end, it'll finally and fully come Totally purified. Think of the prospect, back to the quote, all human culture, language, literature, arts, music, science, business, sport, technological advancement, actual and potential, all available to us. All of it with the poison of evil and sin sucked out of it forever. All of it glorifying God. All of it under his loving and approving smile. All of it for us to enjoy with God and indeed being enjoyed by God in all eternity for us to explore it, understand it, appreciate it, and expand it. That's where we're headed. Like, The future's pretty bright here, folks. Not some ethereal, wispy existence of floating in clouds with wings and harps and songs you don't want to sing. Again, think of the music, like if, if you don't like some of the songs, great, but think of the musical cultural wealth that will be present in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's where we're headed. So let's end with the end of the story and how the end of the story helps us live now in the middle. Revelation 21, again, because it's echoing the language of Isaiah 60. It's the fulfillment of the language of Isaiah 60, 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There's no threats. You don't have to lock any doors anymore. Isn't that great? The only thing that comes in is the wealth of the nations. No one coming in to steal and destroy. And then there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Okay, so what? Is there any impact now? Well, let's think about it this way. You can look back on, like, as as kind of the way you tend to live, some of us look back more than we look forward. Unless when we look forward, we're just forecasting grief because we're so anxious about all the what-ifs. We can look back and say, you know, it seemed like things were going to get better. I, I thought things were getting better then. It seemed that God was at work, but I guess not. And You know, we can just kind of be depressed and discouraged and just think what am I doing? Well, do you remember the storyline? Do you remember how many fits and starts there were? Did God give up? Like, is God still at work? So so we can't live like looking back and just defeated like, oh man, this is horrible and it's going to get worse. No, arise, shine, light has come. Light will ultimately win and fill the earth. So if we look forward, which is what this passage is telling us to do, look forward and let the promised victory of the future strengthen and encourage us in the present. Again, think POW, hearing the Allied planes, it changes everything. It's already come, and the fullness awaits So arise and shine with the light of the inevitable freedom and glorious future that's ours. And what would those POWs start doing in the camp? They would be waking up anybody that's still asleep. Like, did you hear that? And the look on their face is going to be the best advertisement for the trustworthiness of the news. The gospel's supposed to make us beautiful so that the message of this beautiful Savior is actually believable. So how we live really matters. So maybe this election cycle is even a parable of what we're always dealing with in the city of man, dark and failing leadership. Like, what else is new? Remember the cycles of history? Like, we're not the first people to be in a quandary. Light and life is always under the kingship of Jesus. So let's bask in that light, and we can laugh at the days to come because we know where all this is headed. And maybe, just maybe, if that's where we're soaking our souls and we're filled with that light that dispels the darkness, we will begin to shine with the light of our Savior King, and maybe people will wonder what What is going on with you and be attracted to people whose joyful, radiant light and love can't be quenched no matter what how dark and depressing things get around them even like cancer can you imagine the people of God just still buoyant so Bethel arise and shine because Jesus arose and we have this treasure this radiant light within us in jars of clay that we should shine out and hide not hide under a basket so here's this gloomy day right like, oh, what a perfect day to say, arise and shine! Like on this gloomy day, and we're all soaking wet still, and trying to dry. Isn't that perfect though? Because you know what? This world you walk around in—it's it, kind of like a gloomy, wet day. Like, ugh. Of course, where's the light going to come from? The world around you? No, it's going to come from Jesus. But let's let's get our eyes on Him and get just thrilled with this future that is. Radiantly bright for us. And then let's just go shine it in the midst of this gloom. Again, the parable of the bloom gloom that's out there. All right? So it's all because Jesus arose. We can rise and shine because Jesus rose from the grave and has shown on us the light of his glory. So it's appropriate that we close by singing because he lives. All right? So let's pray we'll sing and we'll be dismissed. Oh, God, I pray that the gospel would thrill us, that your light would shine into any hearts that still remain in darkness and don't know the freedom of stepping into the light, not running and hiding, and getting real with you and getting reconciled to you through Jesus. And Lord, for those of us that might be beaten down, depressed, discouraged for whatever reason, Would you please shine your light, all this future glory and grace that's ours and how we can taste it now and we can experience it now, we can give it to others now. Um, Would you please shine on us now and dispel the darkness for the sake of your great name.